Sambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast, bringing you true crime from around the world. Hi Islanders, tonight we have a crazy case. It's got fraud, it's got BDSM. It's got serial kills, and it's a massive, massive twist at the end. So tonight's references are the Daily News New York, the Kansas City Star, the Marysville Journal Tribune, Case Cold Case Files, the TV series, that's life.com.au, vanityfair.com, and a lot of it is from Kansas Supreme Court Records. Okay, strap yourselves in, Islanders. This is a wild one. As I mentioned, we've got fraud, multiple murder victims. We have BDSM, which, for those who don't know, that stands for Bondage and Discipline, BD, Dominance and Submission, DS, Sadism and Masochism, SM. Yes, you might notice there's some double Ds that should be there, and I'm sure they are there, usually, But sometimes this is just abbreviated, well, all the time it's abbreviated to BDSM. Now, as I said, there's going to be a huge twist in this case right at the end. And it's a long one because I've got quite a bit of detail about each of the victims. Okay, so tonight we'll be talking about John Edward Robertson, born December the 27th, 1943, in Cicero, Illinois, in the U.S. of A. Now, (laughs) hi to Roseanne from California Dreaming. She was laughing at my pronunciation at a few of the towns in the Stephanie Lazarus episode. So tonight, I'm going to try my best, all right? So there are a few weird ones here, but we're going to try and get it. So we're talking about John Edward Robinson, Born December 27th, 1943. I'm sure it's Cicero, Illinois, in the US of A. Now, he grew up in a family of seven, including an Alco father and a very strict mother. At 14, he went to England as an Eagle Scout and he saw the Queen, apparently. Well, (laughs) the Scouts he went with, they performed for the Queen. I have no idea what sort of performance they do. Anyway, he went on to enrol in a seminary school in Chicago. But he dropped out as learning to be a priest seemed to be not his thing. In fact, it looks to me like he was kicked out rather than left. In 1961, he was learning to be a radiographer, but he dropped out of that as well. Now, Robinson moved to Kansas City in 1964. Here, he met his wife, Nancy, and they were going to have four kids. The first in 65, the second in 67, and they had twins in 71. Now, as he'd studied radiography for a couple of years, he was able to get himself a job with false credentials, and this won't be the first time he does anything with false credentials, at a medical practice as a radiographer. Now, he ended up getting busted embezzling $33,000 from that practice in 1969. Now, that's about $250,000 in today's money. Now, he got busted. He got three years probation. Oh, God. He then violates his probation by moving back to Chicago, getting a job in insurance and embezzling money from that firm as well. Again, he didn't do time inside, but he did get his probation extended. Sometimes I wonder if you extend these probations, does it make any difference? In 75, it was extended again for securities fraud and mail fraud in connection with fake medical cons- a fake medical consulting company that he just made up. Look, when someone basically does the same crime time and time again, they really do need locking up. If you don't lock them up, they get this idea in their head that they're untouchable and will never go to prison. And in in turn, this tends to escalate their criminality. Okay, so a lot of this next bit, and basically throughout the podcast, will be from court records. And as usual, I do edit them for flow and clarity. 
Anyway, in the 70s, he formed HydroGrow Incorporated, a company that produced hydroponic vegetables. Here, he scammed a friend out of $25,000, saying he could make the guy the money back fast, but he just needed the money now to pay for Nancy's, his wife's, medical expenses. Now, he told his friend she was dying, but as far as I can see, (laughs) Nancy's still alive today. Now, court documents say the 70s, but then other sources say the 80s. Look, I don't think the time really matters. It's what he did that matters. Now, in the 90s, not in the 90s, in the 80s, Robinson offered financial consulting services through his company, Equi2. Now, while he was operating Equi2, he was also operating some sort of outreach program for women that were down on their luck. His operations were interrupted when he was convicted of a non-person felony and did time at the Western Missouri Correctional Centre in Cameron, Missouri. Now, following his release, in the ni- this is basically from the 90s until his arrest in June 2000, Robertson published a mobile home trade magazine called Manufactured Modular Home Living through his company called Specialty. So, can't even speak today. Special till, specialty. Oh God, specialty. Um, that's you know what it means. Specialty publications. Now, Robinson lived with his wife Nancy in a three-bedroom modular home in Olathe. That's Olathe inside Santa Barbara Estates, a large mobile home community. Robinson used computers and email extensively, and also utilized a cell phone and a pager. Now, Nancy began working as the on-site office manager at the Santa Barbara Estates in 1997. Now, he even fraudulently made himself out to be this wonderful citizen and bullshitted his way into the the directorship of a charity. Now, in the mid-90s, Robertson acquired roughly 17 acres of property at a secluded Lynn County location, he moved a trailer onto the property in July 1998 and installed two phone lines, one for his landline and one for his computer. Remember that? Maybe, maybe people don't remember that. I remember that when you'd have one phone call and all of a sudden the internet comes along and you have to plug your modem into it. And then your mum would be saying, can you get off the internet? I've got to make a phone call because that's the way it was. So he had two phone lines. Though married to Nancy since 1964, Robinson's infidelity was an ongoing issue in their marriage. In 1998, Nancy learned her husband was involved in BDSM after discovering fetish websites saved in his internet browser history. There you go, Islanders. Don't forget to delete your browser history. Robinson shared stories of his BDSM liaisons with a Carlos Ibarra, a maintenance employee at Santa Barbara Estates and showed him nude photographs of a girlfriend depicted in BDSM poses. Okay, so from what I can see, Robinson's been busted for some pretty serious crimes. Well, money crimes. Probably because he just couldn't earn the sort of money he wanted to spend. He was able to bullshit his way around town, but the cops, even at this time, they had pretty much an eye on him all the time. But this mild-mannered family man who is making a bit of a name for himself around town with his outreach program lives a double life. His other life filled with BDSM and dealing with the seedier side of town. He was prolific in online BDSM chat rooms where he called himself the master. Other than Robinson's run-in with the law for embezzlement and fraudulent activity, He had been questioned over the years by several different detectives in regards to missing women. The first was 19-year-old Paula Godfrey, who told her friends and family that she'd landed a job at Equi2 and the boss was going to send her away to do some training. When her parents lost contact with her, they filed a missing persons report. Police interviewed Robinson and he denied knowing where she was. A few days later, Paula's parents got a typewritten letter signed by her in hand saying she was moving to start a new life and thanked Robinson for helping her out. She said she didn't want to see her family 
And so the police dropped the investigation. Then there's Lisa Stasi, formerly Lisa Elledge. She was 18 years old when she began dating Carl Stasi sometime after June 1983. Now, Lisa married Carl in August of 84, and she was pregnant at the time. On September the 3rd, 84, Lisa Stasi gave birth to her first child, Tiffany Lynn, at Truman Medical Center in Kansas City. Now, after Tiffany's birth, Stasi's marriage crumbled and Carl re-enlisted in the Navy. He reported to duty at Great Lakes Naval Base outside Chicago, Illinois in, the, in early January 85. In November 84, Robinson contacted Karen Gaddis, a social worker at Truman Medical Center, and told her that he and several Johnson County businessmen had developed a program to provide housing, transportation, daycare and job training for young mothers and their babies. Now, Robinson said he needed referrals of Caucasian women because the program already had African-American participants and needed racial balance. Robinson was looking for a white woman in her teens or early 20s who had a newborn child, was struggling or disadvantaged and had no family support or ties. In January 1985... Robinson told Gaddis another organisation, Hope House, had referred a young lady to his program and he had placed her at a motel in Kansas. Family members last saw Lisa and Tiffany in early January 1985. Carl Stasi's sister, Kathy Klingensmith, babysat Tiffany often. On January the 8th, Lisa dropped Tiffany off at Klingensmith's home and told her that she'd met a a man named John Osborne, who was going to help her get a job and finish her GED. Lisa said she might even get to travel as part of the job training program. Now, Lisa returned to Klingensmith's home to pick up Tiffany on January the 9th. When she arrived, Lisa said John Osborne had paid for her to stay in a room at the Roadway Inn in Overland Park. At approximately 2pm, Lisa called the front desk at the Roadway Inn and gave the hotel receptionist Klingon Smith's phone number in case Osborne called. Osborne called Klingon Smith's number soon thereafter and got directions to her home. Now, the weather was pretty bad because of a strong snow, snowstorm, but Osborne arrived at Klingon Smith's home at approximately 3pm. Lisa and Tiffany went with Osborne, leaving Lisa's car parked outside Smith's home. Less than an hour later, Lisa called Smith to tell her she'd arrived safely at the motel. Smith never saw or heard from Lisa or Tiffany again. Lisa never returned for her car. Now, at around 4.30pm, Lisa called her mother-in-law, Betty Stasi, in a panic. She was crying and she was hysterical. Lisa said they were claiming that Betty Stasi planned to take Tiffany away because Lisa was an unfit mother. Now, Lisa's mother-in-law told her not to believe what they were saying because it was not true. Now, Lisa said they wanted her to sign four blank sheets of paper. Now, Betty Stasi told her not to sign anything. And then Lisa said, here they come. And And she quickly hung up. Now, Betty Stasi never spoke to or saw Lisa or Tiffany again. A few days later, Betty Stasi received a letter purportedly written by Lisa. Now, this was typewritten and signed Lisa at the bottom, and it said that Lisa had left town to start a new life with Tiffany. On January the 10th, Smith called the roadway in and learned Lisa's room had been reserved under a name other than John Osborne. Now, on January the 11th, Smith filed a missing persons report with the Overland Park Police Department. Now, Robinson's name surfaced early in this investigation. On February the 1st, 85, Overland Park detectives interviewed Robinson, who told them he was starting a charitable organisation to provide young mothers job training, food and housing. Now, Robinson admitted he had placed Lisa at the Roadway Inn as part of that program. However, he said Lisa had recently come to his office to give him the motel key. Robinson said Lisa thanked him for the assistance and said she'd made other arrangements. 
Now, Robinson claimed that Lisa and Tiffany left with a young Caucasian male in an older model green car. One week later, Robinson provided a similar story to his Missouri parole and probation officer, Steve Haynes. Now, Robinson told Haynes he'd place Lisa at the roadway inn, but on January the 10th, she and Tiffany came to his business with a man named Bill, and, they, and they'd said they'd planned to start a new life together in Colorado. Now, to corroborate this story, Robinson paid Cora Holmes $800 in exchange for her false statement to police. At Robinson's direction, Holmes told Overland Park detectives that she'd recently babysit Tiffany and learnt Lisa had left for Arkansas with a man named Bill Summers. There you go. People would do anything for money. In January of 87, 27-year-old Catherine Clampett, she moved to Overland Park to start a new life with a brother. Well, go and stay with her brother's family, not with her brother. Now, she had a child which she left with her parents. And Catherine, look, she had some trouble with drugs and alcohol and she just wanted to try and get a new start in life. She told relatives that she'd found a job at a place called Equi2, where she was promised not only her wage, but money to buy new clothes, and the job would involve extensive travel. She said she'd often stay in hotels for a job, so it would be normal for her not to go home after work. Now, one day she left her brother's place on the 17th of June and was never seen again. Her brother listed her as a missing person, and Robinson when contacted, told him he didn't know where she was. Okay, so now there's three missing women. All of them had problems. All of them had dealing with Robinsons before they moved away and were never seen by their family again. They only received typewritten letters signed by each of them respectively. Now, to you and me, this sounds suspect and you'd think the cops would investigate the three cases a little bit more. Well, really, this was before computerization of case records, or at least a central database of cases that was available to police. So each of these reports by the family were investigated by different detectives, different stations, so they were never formally linked at that time. Also, Robinson was seen more as a con man. They didn't see him as someone who would abduct someone or kill someone or do any of these women any harm other than financially, and none of these women had money. Now, between 87 and 93, Robinson would do time for fraud and parole violation. While inside, he was able to sweet-talk a 49-year-old Beverly Bonner. She was the prison librarian. Now, Beverly lived in Cameron, Missouri, with her husband, Dr. William Bonner, and they had two sons. Now, William Bonner, he was the prison's physician. He actually treated Robinson and other inmates at the same prison, of course, where his wife works. In November 93, Beverly filed for divorce. Towards the end of their marriage, Beverly told her husband she was helping Robinson find property for a hydroponics project. Beverly also said she planned to take a job with a company in Chicago. In actual fact, she was leaving her husband to be with Robinson. Now, William Bonner, he would end up paying his ex-wife about $1,000 a month in alimony. In December 1993, Robinson, posing as Jim or James Turner, applied for a mailbox under Beverly's name at the mailroom at Olathe. Now, Robinson executed a lease for box 182 under Beverly's name on January the 1st, 1994. Robinson presented Bev's identification and told the post office he was collecting Bev's mail while she worked in Australia. Now, Bev wasn't seen for her family after her final divorce proceedings in February of 94. Bev's brother, Lowell Heath, invited Bev to his September 1995 wedding, but she didn't attend. Bev's oldest son died in October 1995, but she didn't attend his funeral. Now, in January 94, Bev's brother, Larry Heath, he received a handwritten letter purportedly, 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 
I can't speak today, purportedly from her that said she was starting a new career with an international corporation in Chicago and that she would be travelling extensively, both domestically and abroad. A few months later, Larry received a typewritten letter purportedly from... He... Larry received a typewritten letter from Bev, which was unusual because she'd always written letters by hand. The letter said she was working for a Jim Redmond in the human resources department of a large international corporation. Now, Larry continued to receive similar typewritten letters, say, every three to four months. Now, occasionally he would respond, mailing correspondence to Bev's private mailbox. Now, during the same time period, Lil Heath received roughly half a dozen letters which arrived in envelope postmarked Australia, France, the Netherlands and Kansas City, Missouri. The letters were typewritten, often discussed her travel, uh, uh, travel overseas and were signed in what Bev's brothers believed to be her handwriting. In early 97, the letters ceased. Bev's family grew concerned and contacted authorities to report her disappearance. Now, <laughs> that sounds all a bit sus, doesn't it? That she doesn't turn up to her brother's wedding, doesn't go to her son's funeral, all these letters coming typewritten. No one can get really hold of her, but no one really contacts authorities until 97. I mean, a divorce was in 94. Anyway, now we go to 45-year-old Sheila and her 15-year-old daughter, Debbie Faith. Now, Sheila Faith married John Faith and the couple had a baby girl named Debbie Lynn on October 17, 1978. Now, Debbie was born with a number of issues which limited her ability to walk and control her bladder. Now, Sheila's husband passed away in 93 and Sheila moved with Debbie from California to Pueblo, Colorado to be closer to her friend, Nancy Guerrero. Sheila and Debbie lived on social security and struggled financially. Now, according to Nancy, Sheila was lonely and responded to personal ads in hopes of meeting a companion. Now, she was into BDSM and would get online and look for others that were into the lifestyle. In spring of 94, Sheila told Nancy she'd met a man named John who was a wealthy executive from Missouri who promised to take her on a cruise and put Debbie in a private school. Sheila told her sister, Kathy Norman, that she'd met a man with a good job, that they planned to travel together, and that he planned to buy Debbie a new wheelchair and accessible van. Kathy said Sheila called him Jim Turner, either in a letter or during the last phone call she had with her. Now, Sheila told Nancy that she and Debbie were going to visit John. They planned to be gone for about a month, spending a couple of weeks with John in Missouri and then travelling to Texas to visit family. Now, Nancy expected Sheila to return within a few weeks because they purchased tickets to the Colorado State Fair and Sheila planned to enter a cross-stitched angel into the fair competition. Now, while Sheila packed, Nancy noticed that she didn't take furniture, bedding or other items that someone would need if you weren't coming back. So when she never returned, she got a little bit suspicious. Neither Nancy or Sheila's sister saw or spoke to Sheila or Debbie again after they left Colorado to visit Robinson. After Sheila and Debbie left, Sheila's sisters received letters purportedly written by Sheila. In December 94, Kathy Norman received a typewritten letter from Sheila in an envelope postmarked Canada. The letter said Sheila had met a wonderful man named Jim. Kathy was convinced the letter was a fraud because Sheila always wrote letters by hand and Sheila's signature appeared to be forged. Kathy received another letter the following December. Again, she was convinced Sheila didn't write it because of the typewritten format and the nature of the signature. Sheila's other sister, Michelle Fox, also received a letter in an envelope postmarked outside the country. Michelle immediately suspected it was fraudulent because of the type, format, the style and the unusual signatures. For years following their disappearance, Sheila and Debbie's social security benefits continued to be paid. A private mailbox at the, at the same mail room of Beth, where Bev Bonner's alimony checks were going to was set up under the name Sheila and Debbie Faith and their checks were being sent there as well. 
Now, we go to Isabella Lewicka. She was born in Poland on April the 11th, 1978. She moved to West Lafayette, Indiana with her family at the age of 11. She began studies at Purdue University in fall of 96. She was interested in the arts and was an avid drawer and painter. Now, according to friends, Isabella also had a strong interest in several alternative lifestyles, including paganism, goth and BDSM. In the spring of 97, Isabella told her friend Jennifer Hayes that an international book agent in Kansas City had offered her a job doing secretarial work and had commissioned her to illustrate BDSM manuscripts. Isabella said she'd planned to move to Kansas City to be with this older married man who had also agreed to train her to become a dominant in in BDSM relationships. Now, Isabella told Hayes he wanted her to call him master and to maintain strict confidentiality. Now, Isabella seemed concerned when she inadvertently told Hayes her master was named John. Now, Isabella told her parents she had a summer internship with a publishing company in Kansas City and if it led to a job, she might stay there longer but she didn't rule out the possibility of returning to Purdue for the fall of the 97 semester. Now, Isabella said she would be living at 9280 Metcalf in Overland Park and could be reached by email. On June the 8th, 97, Isabella left for Kansas in a car filled with all her belongings. Now, Isabella's friends believe she moved to Kansas both for BDSM training and for work. Once in Kansas, Robinson helped Isabella establish herself. In February of 98, Robinson contacted a property manager for the Deerfield apartment complex in Olaith. Now, Robinson said he needed a corporate apartment for employees he would train before they were transferred to positions out of the state. Now, in the rental application, Robinson identified himself and Isabella as the prospective occupants. He told the agent that he met Isabella at a graphics trade show that she'd been abused by her parents and that he had adopted her. Now, Robinson signed a one-year rental agreement from the 1st of March, 98 to February 28, 99. Robinson paid the rent by cheque and Isabella occupied the apartment throughout the term of the lease. Now, Robinson would tell people that Isabella was his adopted daughter. But they were seen getting it on in public at times. Now, Isabella would tell people Robinson was her husband, so they really weren't getting their stories right, but really it doesn't matter. Isabella and Robinson did share a BDSM sexual relationship as evidenced by a BDSM slave contract signed by Isabella, along with numerous nude photos depicting her in BDSM poses. Now, Robinson's wife, Nancy, found out about the affair, and normally, when this happened, when he'd have an affair and get busted, he'd end the affair. He'd just end that relationship. But this time, he didn't with Isabella. Now, Isabella disappeared sometime around August of 99. Now, earlier that summer, Robinson convinced another woman, Barbara Sondre, to move from Canada to Kansas. On August the 18th, they executed a lease for an unfurnished duplex at Hunter's Point, located in Grant Street in the Overland Park. Barbara needed furnishings for the duplex, and Robinson agreed to provide them. On August the 23rd, Robinson hired a moving company to deliver household items from Isabella's apartment to Sandra's Grant Street duplex. Over the next two weeks, Robinson brought additional furnishings, including beddings and pillows, blankets, kitchen utensils, artwork, and hundreds of books. Now, it doesn't take a brainwave to realise these are all Isabella's property. Now, people who were asking where Isabella was were told by Robinson that she'd been busted smoking pot and had been deported back to Czechoslovakia. Now, if you're a little bit too young to know, on the 1st of January 93, Czechoslovakia separated very peacefully into two countries, the Czech Republic and Slovakia. Now, he told other people that she'd run away with some bloke. Isabella's father exchanged 25 to 30 emails with his daughter after she moved to Kansas. Isabella was spirited and fought with her parents for autonomy and control over her life. 
When she responded to emails, her tone was consistently abrasive and short, asking her father, what the hell do you want? And telling him to leave her alone. However, on April the 14th, 2000, Isabella's father received a different sort of email from his daughter's account. The message said she and another person had spent the last two weeks travelling the countryside in China. Unlike previous emails, the tone of this message was respectful and polite. The final series of emails Isabella's father received from his daughter's account said she was travelling to overseas locations. Isabella's father was very suspicious of the last of her emails. Now, Robinson, as part of his contract with Isabella, she was to give him her passwords to all her email accounts. Okay, we're just going to take a little break here while I grab a beer. I'm just going to stick in a promo for my mate Mike Morford. All right, go grab yourself one. Hey, all you true crime fans, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morford. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. We dive into a variety of cases in both the U.S. and abroad. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of, like the Pocatello babysitter murders or the canal murders. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime, like the Tylenol murders and the Lindbergh kidnapping. We also dive into cases that are currently breaking thanks to DNA and forensic genealogy. Sometimes you'll hear from people connected to the cases, like the interview we did with the brother-in-law of the Golden State Killer, Joseph D'Angelo. There are close to 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now, including full seasons covering the Zodiac Killer, the Golden State Killer, and Ted Bundy, and new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. All right, let's get back into it. Oh, by the way, next week's promo is for Tara Saraband's new podcast, World's Dumbest Criminal. So check that out as well. All right, so now we get to 28-year-old Suzette Marie Troughton. She was the youngest of Caroline and Harry Troughton's five children. She lived near her mother in the Monroe, Michigan area. The two were extremely close and talked daily, even when Suzette was away. Unbeknown to her mother... Suzette was active in the BDSM community. She frequented BDSM websites and chat rooms, created her own BDSM webpage, and travelled out of state for BDSM trysts. In the mid-1990s, Suzette met Law Remington, a Canadian resident who shared Suzette's interest in BDSM role-playing games. Remington trained Suzette as a slave, the submissive partner in a BDSM relationship. The two became close friends. Now, Remington introduced Suzette to her friend, Tammy Taylor, who also lived in Canada, who also shared interest in BDSM, and became another friend. Suzette placed personal ads on BDSM websites seeking a position as a slave. At that point, Suzette and Robinson began communicating by email. In the summer of 99, Suzette told her mother that Robinson had offered her a job caring for his elderly father, Papa John. Suzette said Robinson and his father were selling off several companies and Papa John needed nursing care as they travelled to various locations to close the deals. Suzette said the job would pay $60,000 annually and require extensive travel to places such as Switzerland and Belgium. My God, these guys are bullshit artists. In October 99, Suzette travelled to Kansas City telling her mum she had an interview with Robinson. When she returned a few days later, Suzette told her mother she didn't like the idea of being away from home, but decided to take the job for one year to earn enough money to return to school. Suzette took a second trip to Kansas in November, explaining she had to sign an employment contract and, a, and find a place to live. Suzette shared the news of her employment opportunity with other friends and family. She told Taylor she would be working for a man named John, who needed someone to care for his el- elderly father, a wealthy businessman, while they travelled to Europe and other destinations throughout the United States. Suzette told Remington she would earn 6500 per month and travel to places such as Australia and Hawaii working for Robinson. Suzette gave similar reports to her aunt, father and employer in Michigan. 
In late 99 and early 2000, Suzette prepared for the move to Kansas and her upcoming travels. She researched colleges and other learning opportunities in Switzerland and Belgium, telling her mother that Robinson said they would be overseas long enough for her to take classes. Suzette completed a passport application, and just before Suzette left, her aunt, Mashala Chidesta, helped Suzette create a list of her friends' and family's contact information. On or about February 12, 2000, Suzette left for Kansas, bringing along her two beloved Pekingese dogs, Pika and Harry, in the moving truck Robinson had rented for her. Now, on February 14th, Suzette arrived and checked into room 216 at the Guesthouse Suites in Lenexa. Robinson had reserved this room for seven nights under his company name Specialty Publications. The reservation was later extended for an additional week. When Suzette checked into her room, hotel staff informed her of their no-pet policy. No pets, no dogs, get out! On February 16, Robinson brought the two Pekingese dogs, Harry and Pecker, for boarding at Ridgeview Animal Hospital in Olathe. Robinson said the dogs belonged to his employee. Now, in completing check-in paperwork, Robinson indicated the dogs would be boarded through to the end of February. Now, once in Kansas, Suzette called her mother almost every day. Suzette told her mother she had decided to put her belongings in storage rather than find an apartment immediately because she and Robinson would be leaving on their trip soon. Suzette also said their itinerary had changed. Rather than travel to Switzerland as originally planned, they decided to go to California, pick up Robinson's new yacht and sail to Hawaii first so Robinson could relax before resuming his meetings. Oh my God. Suzette and Remington, they continued to communicate daily on ICQ. That's an instant messaging program on Yahoo. In these conversations, Suzette disclosed that she was in a sexual relationship with Robinson. Suzette signed a slave contract governing the terms of their master-slave relationship and they videotaped themselves engaging in BDSM sex. Around 1am on March the 1st, Suzette called her mother at work and said she and Robinson were leaving on their trip later that morning. Caroline Suzette never saw or spoke to her daughter again. Suzette and Remington were also communicating via ICQ chat early that morning. Remington ended her chat session with Suzette at 12.51am. Remington never saw or spoke to Suzette again. At 11.43am, a long-distance call was placed from Robinson's Lynn County trailer to Nancy Robinson's work phone. At 2.13pm, Robinson picked up Suzette's dogs at the animal clinic in Olathe. Employees said Robinson appeared to be agitated and in a hurry. He told one employee he was in a rush to get to the airport. Robinson placed the dogs in a small kennel and left. Suzette was not seen with Robinson or in his truck at the animal clinic. At 2.24pm, Robinson's access code was used to gain entry through the security gates at his Olaf storage unit and the code was used to exit the facility six minutes later. At 2.35pm, Olaf Animal Control Officer Rodney E. McLean was dispatched to Santa Barbara Estates after Robinson had instructed the office assistant to report two dogs on the loose. McLean arrived 10 minutes later and saw two Pekingese dogs inside a small, medium-sized carrying kernel located just outside the office. Both appeared to be in good condition. McLean transported them to the local shelter. Suzette never claimed her dogs. At around 3pm, Isabel Clark, a housekeeper at the Guesthouse Suites, saw a man matching Robinson's general physical description loading Suzette's belongings from room 216 into a truck matching the description of Robinson's vehicle in the hotel parking lot. When she cleaned the room, Clark noticed the linens and towels were stained with blood. However, she had observed similar blood stains when she cleaned the room throughout Suzette's stay. Suzette apparently had irregular periods and would bleed heavily. Suzette told Remington that she was experiencing a particularly long and heavy period at the end of February. At around 3.30pm, a hotel security camera captured Robinson checking out of Suzette's room. Hotel staff confirmed Robinson was the person who checked out of the room and paid the bill. 
Suzette was not with Robinson at the time and hotel employees didn't see her at all on March the 1st. A few days after Suzette had supposedly left for California, Caroline Troughton received a letter from her daughter. Its arrival was somewhat unusual and Suzette typically called her mother and didn't write letters. The letter arrived in a pink envelope postmarked from Kansas City on March the 6th, 2000. Now, the envelope was addressed to Caroline Troughton, and the return address said only Suzette Troughton. The handwritten letter was dated February 28, 2000, and discussed Suzette's plan to leave for California with Robinson. Caroline Troughton believed the handwriting on the envelope and letter was her daughter's. However, she found it unusual the envelope was postmarked Kansas City on March the 6th because Suzette said they were leaving on March the 1st. Suzette's father, who lived in Florida, received a similar handwritten letter dated February 28, 2000 in an envelope postmarked Kansas City also on March the 6th, 2000. Now, suspicious of the postmarked date, Caroline Troughton called Robinson, who said Suzette had decided not to take the job. Robinson claimed she'd met a man named Jim Turner and left town with him. Jim Turner was one of Robinson's aliases. A few weeks after receiving the first handwritten letter, Caroline Troughton received a second letter, purportedly written by a daughter in an envelope postmarked San Jose, California. Now, this time, the letter was typewritten with Suzette's name signed in cursive at the bottom. Now, Suzette's mother believed the signature was Suzette's. The letter opened with the statement, Well, I'm off on an adventure of a lifetime. Caroline Troughton was convinced Suzette didn't draft the letter because of the language, style, wording and typewritten format, which was wholly inconsistent with her daughter's writing. Now, just before her April the 9th birthday, Suzette's grandmother received a birthday card written by Suzette. The card was in a green envelope postmarked San Jose, California on March 27, 2000. Now, Suzette's aunt, Chidester, believed the mailing address on the envelope was written with Suzette's handwriting, but that, that the S. Troughton written in the return address section of the envelope was not. Now, Suzette's father also received a similar typewritten letter in an envelope postmarked San Jose, California, March 27, 2000. Several weeks later, Suzette's family received a number of letters authored by Suzette in envelopes postmarked Veracruz, Mexico on May the 19th, 2000. Now, Suzette's aunt, Chidester, received one of these letters. She believed the address on the envelope was written by Suzette, but the return address was not. The letter was typewritten and dated May the 5th, 2000. It discussed Suzette's travel and was signed, Love You, Suzette. Now, Chidester believes Suzette signed the letter, but she was not convinced Suzette drafted it because of the punctuation, style and organisation were not characteristic of Suzette's writing. Suzette's niece, her grandmother and her father received similar letters postmarked May 19 from Veracruz, Mexico. On the 24th of March 2000, an email from Suzette's Hotmail account was sent to several members of Suzette's family, including her aunt, Chidester, her sister, Kim Padilla, her brother, Michael Troughton, and her father's girlfriend. The message said Suzette had written to her mother that she'd left on a trip and that she wouldn't have online access for some time and that she would try to stay in touch when possible. Chidester is convinced Suzette didn't write the email because the word choices, style and format were inconsistent with Suzette's writing. Now, Chidester was also convinced Suzette would have called her rather than sending an email before she left on such a big trip. Suzette was never seen alive again. Okay, so by the year 2000, we have Paula Godfrey, 19, Lisa Stasi, 19, and her baby, Tiffany, We've got Catherine Clamp at 27, Beverly Bonner, 49, Sheila Faith, 45, and her 15-year-old daughter, Debbie Faith, Isabella Lewicka, 21, and Suzette Troughton, 28. All of them are unable to be located, and most are reported missing, but not all. Now, over the years, the cops knew Robertson as a con man. He was a liar, and wherever he worked, he was likely to steal from them. 
Now, one welfare organisation called Birthright, they called investigators asking to check out Robinson, who wanted to help single mothers through his Equi2 and Equi Plus organisations. Now, they told investigators Robinson did have connections with a girl that they couldn't locate, who also had a baby. Investigators at the time were thinking, how's he going to make money or scam someone from his outreach program? Now, they weren't thinking he was looking for victims, but nevertheless, they thought he was a dangerous guy that needed to be off the streets while they investigated him more thoroughly. So they decided to go looking for parole violations. In May of 85, 21-year-old Teresa Williams called police and told them Robinson had put a gun in her vagina and threatened her. Now, Robinson had let himself into the apartment with his own set of keys. Teresa was asleep but woke up when Robinson barged into her bedroom. Now, Robinson grabbed her by the hair, pulled her over his knee and started spanking her. He said, you've been a real bad girl. You need to learn a lesson. Now, Teresa was screaming. Robinson then threw her to the floor and pulled a gun on her. He said, if you don't shut up, I'll blow your brains out. He put the gun to her head and pulled the trigger. Now, he clicked, but there was no bullets in it. Robinson then stuck the barrel into her vagina. He said, I bet you'd never had a blowout. Robinson pulled the gun from Teresa's body, stuck it back in his holster and left the apartment. Now, at first she didn't call cops. She was just that terrified of Robinson. Now, he did go inside again, but was back on the streets in 1987 when Catherine Clampett ends up going missing. Now, the cops have three missing women with some sort of connection to Robinson, but they just don't have any real leads to pin him on anything. All the missing women had sent letters back to their family saying they were starting a new life and wanted to be left alone. Now, the cops, they end up start looking at Robinson closely when Suzette Troughton goes missing. So there's all these other women have gone missing over the years, but it's finally when Suzette Troughton goes missing, they really start to look at him closely. Now, her mother, Caroline, got in touch with police and told them she had a photo of the guy Suzette went off with, and it looked like this John Robinson guy. She had his mobile number, so police asked her to call him while they monitored the phone call and recorded it. Now, Robinson, when he answers, he just sounds dodgy as fuck on the call. Now, at first, when asked, do you know Suzette, he just seems to not recognise Suzette's name at all until Caroline reveals who she is. She's Suzette's mum. He then goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, And he goes into this sort of almost automatic professional lying mode. And he says, oh, yes, oh, he does remember Suzette, but she'd left with a guy called Jim Turner and she's travelling with him. He then says he'll try and get her to send a card or email her. Police, they are so sus of this guy now. They put full 24-hour surveillance on Robinson, and this is in late March 2000. Now, they follow him to an 18-acre Lynn County farm near La Signa. La Signa. Did I get get that one right? I didn't say Signe. I said La Signa. Oh, Je ne parle pas français, eh? The property, that had a trailer home on it. He stays there for about an hour, then he leaves to go back to his other home. They go through his garbage at both properties and they find shredded paper that they put back together and they find payments to storage lockers. So they trail him. All day, this is every day they trailed him, he'd be chasing women. But he'd always be home by dinner time. Now, they found he had women... And he'd be visiting them in multiple hotels all over the place for these BDSM hookups. Cops said they saw him go to hotels with at least 30 different women. And women he was meeting on the BDSM chat rooms. Now, investigators are trying to get a warrant to search his storage locker in his homes. But they just don't have enough on him to warrant a warrant. Then of all things, a woman goes to the cops complaining Robinson stole her sex toys. Vicky Nyfield, she tells police her sex toys are missing and Robinson took them. They were her her whips, chains, handcuffs and paddles. I don't think she was playing ping pong. Another woman goes to the cops. Now, this is a bit more serious, saying he got too rough with her on one of the hookups and thought police should know that maybe 
this guy's a little bit dangerous. On June the 2nd, 2000, police were finally able to get an arrest warrant for battery. They also got a warrant to search his property and his storage units. Now, they really do hope to find Vicky's sex toys and get them back to her. Well, they arrest Robinson at his trailer home in Olathe. Now, he was a little bit freaked out at the start when they told him they were arresting him for stealing sex toys, but they also said they might get him for murder. This sort of freaked him a bit. But then he snapped out of it and he got back into his con man mode. Now, nothing found at the Old Lake Trailer Park premises at all. So they go to the farm in Ling County on June the 3rd. This is the next day. Cadaver dogs, they're on the farm. They're all over the place, but then they sniff out some yellow barrels. These barrels smell like death. Police open one of the lids and they see a woman's body inside. Now, I have seen these photos. They're shocking. At first, the body, it sort of looks like a a large uncooked chicken in there, a huge chicken. That's what it looks like. It's a white female placed head first into the barrel. The second barrel also has a white female stuffed head first into it. Now, autopsies would reveal that both women were killed by blunt force trauma to the head from something like a ball hammer. Suzette Trounet was identified as one of the women, but the other one was unknown at first. She wasn't one of the missing women they suspected Robinson being involved with either. The body would be identified as Isabella Lewicka. They then turned their attention to his storage jet at Stormore for Less, Raymore, Missouri. Here they find three barrels and three bodies inside. Investigators at first think these are Paula Godfrey, Lisa Stasi and her daughter Tiffany and Catherine Clampett. The three women and, and the baby that were missing and connected to Robinson's from the 80s. Now, three bodies would be found, no babies inside. But autopsies showed the bodies haven't been dead long enough to be any of those three women they were looking for. So things are starting to get a little bit strange and a little bit really like, what the hell has this guy been doing? These three women would be identified as mother and daughter, Sheila and Debbie Faith. And the other one was Bev Bonner, the librarian who left her husband for Robinson and no one even knew was missing. Robinson had murdered Sheila and Debbie Faith for their social security checks and with Bev Bonner, he murdered her for alimony checks that were being sent to her each month. But there is a huge twist to this story that no one would suspect. Okay, so they found five barrels, right? They're Suzette, Isabella, Sheila, Debbie and Bev. But they're still looking for Paula Godfrey, Lisa Stasi and her baby Tiffany and Catherine Clampett. So on the news, it's all a big story. The photos are released to media as part of this huge story to see if anyone knows anything about these other women that are still missing. Then 15-year-old Heather Tiffany Robinson. Yes, Heather Tiffany Robinson sees her uncle John Robinson on the news accused of all this murder and stuff. Now, as part of this news coverage, as I said, photos of the three still missing women that investigators want more information about are shown. Well, not only the three missing women, but also they have a photo of baby, a baby of Lisa Stasi, five-month-old at the time, of course, Tiffany Stasi. Now, Heather Tiffany Robinson... She's looking at the photo of the baby. She realises that's her. You see, Robinson had organised a baby to be adopted by his brother Donald and wife Frieda Robinson in 1985. That's 15 years before and was paid $5,500. It turns out he forged all the documents, all the adoption documents, everything. Now, Donald and Frieda, they saw this. They went to police they told them he's, that Robinson, that John Robinson, had sold them a baby in 1985, but as far as they knew, the baby came from a woman that killed herself in a hotel room and that all the documentation seemed legit. So they checked the baby footprint on file. There must be a baby footprint they do. And that matched Heather's feet. So he obviously killed Lisa Stasi just to get Tiffany, her baby, so that he could make $5,500 off his brother 
in an dodgy adoption. This guy has no moral compass. I tell you, none at all. Now, there'd be a couple of court cases. This has gone on too long tonight, so I'm not going to get into every detail. But on October 2002, he was tried for capital murder of Suzette Troughton and Isabella Lewicka. First degree murder for Elisa Stasi and kidnapping and the sale of Tiffany Stasi. He would be found guilty of all counts after pleading not guilty. And he received a death sentence. For Bev Bonner, Sheila and Debbie Faith, he would plead guilty to their murders. He would also plead guilty to the murders of Paula Godfrey and Catherine Clampett. Robinson refuses to tell authorities the whereabouts of Lisa, Paula and Catherine. Although in 2015, the Kansas Supreme Court vacated the Suzette Trouton and Lisa Stasi murder convictions on technicalities. Still, they upheld the Isabella Lewicka conviction and the death sentence that went with it still stands. Now, Robinson remains on death row at the El Dorado Correctional Facility in Kansas. Now, apparently, they haven't executed anyone since they reinstated the death penalty in 1994. So he's probably just going to stay there till he dies. Investigators suspect he's got more bodies hidden out there. Bodies of maybe women that had no family that missed them at all. Robinson preyed on these vulnerable women as well as preyed on those that were into BDSM. His dodgy outreach programs were set up just to find the type of women he could go looking for, women down on their luck, requiring a helping hand. He also knew that if he went a little bit too far as a slave master, the victims were less likely to go to police. He was thinking that their lifestyle would be ridiculed by the cops and they wouldn't be taken seriously. I think he not only killed for financial advantage, but I think he also started to get off with his BDSM partners just really pushing it to the limit. And he needed more. He wanted to take his fetish to the extreme. He needed to kill. To think, he got away with his crimes over a 16-year period, being the mild-mannered good citizen, helping out the disadvantaged. But really, he was a remorseless con man, happy to take the life of someone for financial advantage or for his sexual pleasure. He was one of the first internet killers, using the anonymity of, oh my God, he was very anonymous on the web to prowl for his victims. Please be careful out there, people. He wasn't the first, he won't be the last to use the internet to go about his murderous ways. Now, good on Vicky Nyfield. She wasn't scared at all to go to the cops to get her sex toys back. Now, she really got this ball rolling for the cops to be able to get warrants on him. And what an arsehole he was to Suzette's dogs, just letting them loose on the streets. My God. Also, what he would do, he'd give his victims' possessions away. He kept a lot. But like that cross-stitched angel that Sheila Faith made to take to the Colorado State Fair with a friend Nancy, he gave that away to one of his women. And a lot of Isabella Lewicka's possessions, he also gave away to other women as well. There you go, Islanders. I really didn't know much about this case until I watched the cold case files last week. And I just thought, thought my God, this guy, just another one of those, those guys who flies under the radar. But he was a real dodgy guy. The cops knew him as a con man. They had no idea what he was really up to. I mean, that's the ultimate sort of camouflage, isn't it? Just make them think he's just a con man asshole while he's going around killing. They thought, no, we wouldn't be killing anyone at all. But they couldn't really work out what financial advantage he could get out of these vulnerable women. Well, we found one. He killed one of them and gave a baby away to his brother. Well, didn't give away, sold it to his brother for $5,500. Jesus Christ. Yet I think this is what we all like about true crime. It's the absolute, the shit that goes down. It's just unbelievable. All right, Islanders, I think you've heard enough of me tonight. My voice is just about gone, too. I'm just going to have a quick beer. So I'd like to thank my patrons, past and present, for keeping the island <laughs> island lights on. Like I said last week, the hosting bills come up now. That means all the other bills come up. 
We're nearly five years we've been on the island. Jesus. A special thanks to Yorkie and Cheryl Fink who've joined the island on Patreon. Thank you so much. If you'd like to throw a dollar my way, that's all you need to do. Chuck a dollar my way. Please check out patreon.com forward slash Drew Grime Island. Or if you just want to shout me a beer, you can donate to paypal.me forward slash Drew Crime Island as Misty Mullins and Clarence Benton Jr. did last week. Thank you so much. You can go to my website, truecrimeisland.com, where you can stream each episode if you don't want to use those dodgy iTunes or pod players. I've got links to merch, social media, all that stuff there as well. I'm nearly burpy. Also, you can email me if you want to get in touch. Email is the best way, honestly. Well, that's about it. I've been your host, Camber. You've been listening to True Crime Island. As I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Be careful who you're talking to on there. Night and Boom Fakalanga. Um,